Welcome to WLEI, the official podcast of the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm executive producer Josh Raposa. So when I'm not here uh, working on this podcast, I'm uh, I'm either out working with you know in our marketing communications department or working on our animations or you know uh, planning out the, the the transformation summit. Sometimes I get to go visit companies or yeah, I even you know I don't know paint the occasional wall here. So I wear a lot of hats, um, and as anyone out there knows, wearing a lot of hats can prove difficult. Um, it's uh, particularly around staying focused on what you're doing at that particular time. So uh, a few years ago, I discovered mindfulness. It's made a, a huge difference um, in virtually all of the areas, all the different hats that I'm dealing with. Staying in the moment, um, you know, in the location I'm at with the people I'm speaking with eliminates a lot of the work and the rework of asking people to repeat things or sorting through my notes when I can't remember something. And it definitely makes me much more observant at the Gemba. So in short, it really eliminates all of that noise that distracts me from what I should be doing. They say uh, one of the best lean tools is a good pair of walking shoes. And I agree with that in a lot of ways. But if your mind isn't where your shoes are, what kind of value are you adding? So that's where I found mindfulness to be really, really important. And maybe something that it really goes hand in hand with lean thinking. Today in the studio with LEI chairman and author John Shug, we have author and LEI faculty member Mike Orzen. They're here today to talk about mindfulness as well as a little bit of lead with respect. Uh, it's a great conversation. Uh, I really recommend listening to it. Here we go. So, Mike, welcome to WLEI, <laughs> broadcasting live from Kendall Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's great to be here. And you've been here with us uh, all day, and, and you'll be with us again tomorrow teaching a workshop. Yes, yeah, we're doing uh, Lead with Respect, one of the uh, most popular workshops I've, I've offered through LEI. Uh, and it's it's been a great success for day one. And uh, it's the end of day one, and you're still energized. Yeah. And uh, you allowed me to uh, thank you for letting me sit in for much of the day. Sure. I appreciate you being there. And you seem to enjoy teaching. Has that always been the case? I love it, yeah. My, uh, my dad said I should have been a, a college professor, but I do, I do well, love we're teaching. Lo- we're lucky you did not choose that <laughs> path. <laughs> I think I am, too. I love I love the world of lean, and I like uh, working with with companies and uh, connecting with the students and with the attendees of, of workshops like this is just it's it, it is energizing. That's the right word because when when people start to connect, make some of these connections, particularly the I think the key connection around lead with respect is lean is not all about the tools of value stream management. That's a big part of it. Continuous improvement is crucial. But without a a specific plan on how I create an authentic connection with people and really develop trust and uh, sincerity, it just won't go anywhere. And I think so many people have, have been on the lean path for over a decade and they're saying, but it's still not what we thought it was gonna be. They come to this workshop and they say, I think we've identified the area that we need to be working on that we have literally neglected, and that's connecting with people through respect. So there's kind of the hardware side and the software side. Yeah, that's to, a good to, way to look to, at to, it. To, to get to where we want to go. So how did this Lead with Respect uh, workshop come about? Well, it all started with uh, uh, my friend and colleague's uh, great book, Lead with Respect, by Michael Ballet. And I uh, read his book, and I was blown away. As a matter of fact, 
I read it a second time, which is something I rarely do for any book. But I thought it was so good and it was so readable. I stayed up half the night and I read it twice. It's a novel, so it goes yeah. it goes fast. Yeah, it it's goes page, super it's a, fast. Something yeah. of a page turner, at least it, within I the lean uh, lean world of yeah. uh, books. If you're a, if you're a lean person, it's a page turner. If you're an, a person from IT, it's also a page turner because it's set in in an IT shop. Uh, or if you're in manufacturing, it's a page turner because there's there's uh, many examples from an automotive manufacturer who's who's not named in the book, but you can assume who that might be. So it is set in a non-manufacturing setting, which yes. is uh, nice. It gets to reach out to a broader audience than yeah. it leans a, a traditional manufacturing audience. Yes. And it's written uh, kind of from the perspective of, of more senior leaders. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And the way uh, leadership can unfold. And it's told through the, uh, the story of a woman who has some experiences uh, and a lot of learning. Uh, and then you had the idea, I think, yes. of uh, turning that into a workshop. That wasn't really uh, the uh, uh, author, uh, our good friend Michael Bale's idea. I think it was uh, yours. It's kind of like when I wrote Managing to Learn. Uh, it was really David Verbal that came along and said, hey, this would be a great workshop. Interesting, yeah. And uh, yeah. you've done the same with a Lead with Respect. So how did you go about developing the workshop based the, on well, what's in the book? The, uh, the first thing I did was reach out to Michael Ballet, and I mm -hmm. sent him an email with praising his, his book. I figured uh, uh, some, uh, uh, some praise would, would go a it's long a way. It's a yep. good start. Yep. Yep. And uh, I said, would you like to uh, co-develop a workshop with me? And he said, I don't know. That's, that's not what Michael uh, that's does. Not, he says, it? that's not what I do. I'm not into workshops. Uh -huh. The answer is no. <laughs> and I said, okay. would, you, uh, would you be interested in supporting me to develop a workshop? And he said, what would that look like? And I said, well, let's honor lean thinking here. What if I was to develop four to ten slides at a time? So I would send you small lot sizes and try to create a, a, an even flow. And what I'd ask you to do is redline those slides, challenge me every step of the way, uh, and uh, return those with questions and comments. We'll do some Skype calls and numerous emails. And uh, he said, I'm up for that. I'd be willing to do that. Well, like any project worth doing, it took a lot more work and a lot more time than you imagine at the beginning of the journey. So I think it was about eight or nine months of, of uh, back and forth. And uh, uh, when, when I had the prototype, uh, I, uh, I contacted LEI and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to share. I want to show you what we've got. And I came out to... Uh, to Boston and uh, spent a day and went through and I think we had a, about six or seven uh, of the LEI core staff in the room and they had some challenges they had some comments but overall it was very positive and uh, from there uh, we went live and I believe we've offered this workshop I'd have to look at the calendar but I want to say it's probably been about three years I think we've had it out for three years. Well, it's great. You know, people, different people learn in different ways. Yes. Some read books yes. um, and are book readers. Some read novels and others like more direct, you know, training manual type books. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but others uh, just learn better in a, in a workshop setting with an instructor that can have dialogue, ask questions. So it's nice to have those two different modes yes. of, uh, of getting of engaging with this content. 
It, it really is. And this workshop uh, has been super successful. We've been invited in to many companies to offer it, you know, on site. And the difference there is we go a little bit deeper. We have their Gemba to access, and we go a little bit deeper on the issues that, that they're struggling with. But it's also good when we do these public offerings, like the one we're doing right here uh, at LEI, because you get the, the cross-pollinization, different ideas, different industries, and uh, had some feedback today that I thought was marvelous. One of the, one of the attendees said uh, her biggest takeaway was what she had learned through sharing and interacting with the other people in the room. And you can't always get that uh, reading a book or uh, even only interacting with people in from, your, from your own, own company. From your own company, exactly. Yeah, in this case, I think we have people here from healthcare, from construction, uh, even from the army. Yes, yeah. So it's a diverse group. It uh, is with uh, with the perspectives that come along with that. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's uh, always interesting how much commonality there is as well, too. You know, that's often one of the biggest takeaways to find out that someone dealing with the issues of working in the army yes. uh, has a lot of the same problems ultimately as someone working in a hospital. Yeah, or construction or manufacturing. It there is. Uh, it's it's interesting when when you when you think of continuous improvement and lean, there's a lot of commonality, but our minds seem to to position us to think that we're very unique, and that our problems are are unlike anyone else's problems. Our challenges uh, require completely unique approaches to those those problems, and maybe sometimes that's the case. But often, what we discover is. If we had a capable process, maybe our countermeasures and our solutions are unique, but if we had a capable process to address those in a, in a structured way, we could save a lot of time. And of course, that is the gift of lean thinking. So if you think of lean thinking really as not a solution, a set of solutions, but a means of deriving solutions, exactly, then you can take it anywhere. And you really can't take it anywhere. And, you know, I think that leads to an, to an interesting point, and that is often the, the organizations I work with and the people I try to coach, there's a lack of clarity around what success looks like or what good is or what great is. So we've embarked on, quote, a improvement effort, but we haven't really identified the critical to success factors up front. And often, it's, and often we have our KPI without the critical, but without the KSF, the, yeah, the key success factors. Exactly, and so we've got the cart way before the horse. Right. Then we get wrapped up in the tools. So we spend more time working uh, a lean tool or developing some standard work template or job instruction or something. What we haven't stopped back to say. What is the end game here? If this is successful, what's going to change for us? And how do we know whether or not that change is really better than what we had? Tell us a little bit about how you see those things fitting together, lean thinking and mindfulness. Sure. Uh, I believe that the mind is an incredible uh, tool. It's a gift for all of us, but it can also be the biggest barrier to truly seeing and uh, understanding what's in front of us. So, so much of lean, when we talk about go and see, we talk about grasping the situation. We talk about truly understanding, contributing, and root causes. They're all valid points, but if what's between our ears actually 
in some ways prevents us from truly seeing. Our biases get in the way of seeing, <laughs> of, of grasping what's really in front of us. Exactly. But we can intellectually paint such a vivid picture that we think what we're seeing is what we're truly seeing, and it's not. Now, the only way to to be, in my experience, the only way to be able to move forward in that, uh, towards seeing what's really there, or being in the present moment, or not letting your bias or your distractions pull you off point, is to have a technique or a series of techniques so you can consciously say, look, my mind is drifting right now. I'm not all here. I'm not completely focused. But without a set of tools, we're pretty much at, at the mercy of our minds. Today, in, in our Lead with Respect class, one of the attendees came up to me at the break and she said, you know, when I'm at the Gemba, I often experience monkey mind. She said that. Monkey mind. Mm -hmm. And monkey mind is a term that you hear a lot in the meditation community. Monkey mind is a wandering, random, distracted mind. And of course, when we think about lean thinking, we want clarity, we want calm, we want poise, and we want a healthy curiosity. Well, if I've got monkey mind and I'm distracted and I'm, I'm kind of out of control, I can't be calm, I can't see clearly, I can't consider uh, things without my bias and my filters. So it reminds me of what you talked about earlier as we were getting started, um, which is the relation between the lean tools and perhaps a, a broader or deeper uh, purpose of, of applying lean thinking to any of our situations. Yes. So they really kind of work hand in hand. They do. They really do. They complement one another in so many ways. And it's interesting that when you think of an organization, I know we like to talk about organizational excellence or organizational performance, but an organization is simply a collection of people. It could be 8,000 people, it could be eight people, it could be a global organization. But if I wanna build organizational excellence, I need to build individual excellence. And if I wanna build individual excellence, I need individuals that are conscious, that are aware, that are present, that are focused in the moment. And in our world, particularly now, more than ever, I believe, with the 24-7 news cycle, with the computer strapped to your hip called the iPhone, with, all, with the social media bombardment, with the pace of change, and with the threat of, of fear or, or global terror that we've got 24-7, most people don't have a way to settle their mind or calm their mind. And I think the best analogy is, would be one of those little snowballs that you see, like a, a, like a Christmas snowball, you know, those little the glass. The crystal glass Yeah, the ball, crystal yes. glass ball. Well, you look inside, if that ball is still and the, and the snow is down on the ground, you look inside and you see a nice little pristine snowman or a Christmas scene or something like that. But if you shake the crystal ball, it's very hard to see what's in the middle because the snow obscures the vision. Our minds are very much like that crystal ball when it's agitated and when it's shaken. And for many people, 
they really don't know what they need to do to settle it. Even if they feel, well, on the weekend I took a hike or I relaxed a little bit and now it seems to be settled a bit. They come to work, they're smacked with the first issue or crisis or problem of the day and that crystal ball of theirs is back into a flurry and it doesn't settle until next weekend, if ever. Oh, that's amazing. Sometimes we'll go on vacation and we'll think I'm changed forever. Yes. And it takes maybe 10 minutes back at work sometimes. So it's easy to say these things, have a yes. calm mind, to be yeah. able to see things un- in an unbiased way. It is. Uh, but it's easier said than done. Very much and so. And so when you're in the line of fire. So what, uh, do you have a, a, t- a tip or two that you can share sure. with, the, uh, with the audience sure. now? Uh, the, some techniques, and, some tips, some tricks, some yeah. tools. Well, and you know, this is what we're going to talk about at the, at the summit uh, in Nashville, in in Nashville. Uh, we're going to go into uh, quite a few exercises that we can do but uh, to do this because you really do need tips and tools. And you need practice, which and people will be able to do when, when they're with you in Nashville. At exactly. The and they'll go home with a series of, of uh, with actual pl- a plan that they can use. So if they are serious about this, they can practice it, tie it to their lean thinking and their lean practice because the two, I believe, uh, go hand in glove. They really do. One complements the other, and it works in both directions. In other words, the more lean thinking you do, the more mindfulness you'll experience. And the more mindfulness you create, the more presence you create, the better you are at lean thinking. So, so it's mutually reinforcing. It really is. That's Maybe it. it's even that's, one of the same thing. Yeah. It, I, you know, well, now you're really getting into, that's pretty deep. <laughs> but I believe you might be getting very close to the real truth. It is one and the same thing. So one of the tools that I like, and it's so simple because it's portable, it requires no equipment, and it can be done without drawing attention to yourself. And that is simply to become aware of your breathing. Now, this is not some kind of new age hocus pocus stuff. These concepts have been around literally for thousands of years. So if your critical mind right now is saying, oh God, you know, what, we're going to cross our legs and, and levitate or something, don't, don't let yourself go there. Just, just I, breathe. You got to just try it. Okay. So all you do is when you notice that that snowball of yours is starting to get agitated, it could be something as, as simple as somebody cuts you off on the road driving into work, somebody yells and screams, a major project isn't ready at work, a quality leak occurred at your factory, anything that gets your attention and starts to push you off balance so your mind starts to spin up. It starts with noticing. It starts with noticing. That's the 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 combine that brings this tool. That is it. Okay. So first we have to stop. So we have to stop and notice. Once we stop and notice, then we want to notice our breathing. We want to focus on our breathing. And we're not labeling it and we're not judging it. So we're not saying I'm breathing funny or I'm breathing deep or I'm breathing heavy or anything. In some meetings, we may tend to hyperventilate. uh, (laughs) Exactly. We want to notice that and then just uh, But we just notice it. But what we don't want to do is try to control our breathing. A lot of people think, oh, now I need to get into some kind of deep breathing or some kind of shallow breathing or something kind of different breathing. This is about noticing. This is not about doing. The first step, so we stop, 
we notice our mind, then specifically we focus on our breath. From okay. there, that's, from, that's uh, step one, if you will. Yeah, that's it. From there, what we simply want to do is observe what's going on right now. What's going on? And we ask. So our, now I'm back to looking on the outside. So I stopped and I noticed my breathing, and now I'm going to observe yeah. what's happening around me. In the and meeting, I'm going around the plant floor, and there are two people yelling at each other, yes. and whatever's happening is happening. Yeah. And well, actually, there's when we when we say what's going on right now. There's two levels to look at that. One is to say what's going on inside of me and then what is going on outside of me. Now all of this can be done in about three or four seconds. This is not a 30 minute deep meditation process. So this is simply, look, I, can, I notice, I can feel that I'm getting spun up about this. What do you mean we've got this issue? I thought we had dealt with this. First thing I do, I can take a, a breath and I can ask myself, what is, how's my breathing? Basically, I'm checking in with my body. Now, today in the Lead with Respect class, you said, John, you said something very interesting that, that reminded me of the importance of this. You talked about grasping the situation and when we talked about the practice of learning, you said that we need to use all our senses to understand. All our senses to understand. I think so. And that, in me, that triggered a thought. When we're stuck in just our brain and just our thoughts, we're not using all our senses. And to stop, to pause, and to ask myself, what's going on inside of me? What do I see outside of me? and I start to breathe. Now when you breathe, all I'm doing when I breathe is I simply want to see what I notice when I breathe. Now I know this sounds crazy, but you just have to try it. Mm -hmm. So for some people when they breathe, what they notice is I can feel the air coming in my nostrils. Other people will say I can feel my lungs expanding. Other people will say I can feel the air in the back of my throat. They're all good answers, it doesn't matter. But in the split second that you bring yourself to focus on your body and your breath, you begin to go towards what you talked about, using all your senses. What I find is when I'm at the Gemba and I do this, all of a sudden I notice my feet touching the floor. I notice the air in my throat. I notice the warmth on my head from the fan. When you're at this state, the Gemba looks completely different. And the reason it looks different is because you're really there, perhaps for the first time. You're not there with another 20,000 ideas in your head. That Christmas ball is not full of snow, it's clear. And now you're looking and you're saying, what do I see? So many of the questions that we've learned from LEI for decades. What is the purpose of the value stream? What is the process? Is there flow? Where, it, where there isn't flow, are we using pull? How are problems illustrated and made visible? All these things, all of a sudden, you can see them. It's all about the questions yes. and how you can address them using all, all five or really six senses, I think. Yeah. So we talk about learning to see. 
And that's one sense. And today in the workshop, you were talking about listening. Yes. Another important one. But really, uh, when we're going to uh, understand what's happening, to grasp the situation, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, feel. Sometimes there's a machine over there that you, yeah. I've, I've seen. I've seen. Sure. You can walk up and uh, touch it, and it's vibrating, and yeah, you can and hear say things. Not there's right. A, you yeah. can hear things when they're uh, when they're abnormal. So any means you have to determine yes. if things are normal or abnormal. Yes. And then with practice, and you put all those together, and there's kind of a sixth sense. And yes. sometimes you can walk into a right. You can walk into a room, a conference room, or a factory, yeah. and you know right away that there's there's something, there's something isn't up. right. Yeah, something is up. Is this grasping the situation? And of yeah. course, Tracy and Ernie Richardson talk a lot about grasping the situation in, yes. in six different ways. And uh, it's, it's so easy to say, but that's really the most important thing is being able to be aware of just what's happening. Yes. Uh, from that, you can determine a gap between the way things are and the way you'd like it to be. Yes. Uh, and then that can tell us how we should react to the moment, how we should respond, or how should we uh, plan for the next time we're in a similar, a similar situation. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So the so we digressed a little bit, but there's one final step. So I I first I notice, then I stop, then I focus. I notice how I'm breathing, and I focus on that. Then I look at what's happening inside of me and outside of me. The next thing I do, and this is a key step, is I intentionally select my next step and we often do this in lean thinking we say in a coaching session for example we'll say what's your next step absolutely and we need to do that in this this whole process I'm describing really is it's almost a mini PDCA inside your mind. That I, think, I think not almost. I think it is. <laughs> what and, it and is. Even your first boss at Price of Waterhouse, when he yeah. was asking you to think ahead, he didn't use the word PDCA or even hypothesis. Yes. But what's your intention? What, what do you expect to happen? And what's exactly. your intention? What do you want to see happen? Yep. That's PDCA. Yeah. That's the beginning. That's the first step of PDCA. It really is. So I think what we're talking about here is a, a personalized, rapid PDCA cycle within someone's mind that can really be done in a few breaths. When that happens, the grasp the situation is from six different directions or six different perspectives can be done because we're seeing things with a much clearer mind. So in I know uh, there's a term in Zen, they talk about beginner's mind. Beginner's mind, I wanna have a freshness or a clarity and a curiosity that I'm looking at this problem for the first time. So there's no stupid questions. There's no assumptions that I'm going to make because I really am looking at it as if it was for the first time. And that is extremely liberating. I find it gives one a lot of energy. So if you feel worn out and tired, like, oh God, we've got to deal with this again, when we do it from a mindfulness perspective, we're dealing if, with it for the first time. We're not dealing with it again. It's not a chronic problem and you're sick and tired of it's, it. It's not the Groundhog Day problem. It's not the Groundhog Day. It's a new day. So connecting your experiences, connecting your uh, long-time uh, uh, association with uh, mindfulness, to what you're doing now uh, yes. with uh, leading with respect, 
it becomes something then that's a very practical way to bring kind of the soft sides and the, and, and the more technical sides of lean thinking and lean enterprise together. Together. It? And you know, I'm finding this is particularly true in uh, what's happening in the, in the IT world. So I'm working with several banks and insurance companies that are under tremendous pressure to uh, to become more effective, more efficient, and more uh, agile towards... Well, I was going to ask you about the, uh, the agile word and the agile yes. uh, community and how that interfaces with what you're doing with exactly. IT in these banks today. How do they see that? How do you well, see that playing out Well, what we're finding is, that in many ways, these organizations with agile, with lean IT, and even now with DevOps, went down the same path that we saw in lean manufacturing. Lots of training, lots of tools, lots of promise, mediocre results. And the good news is what we've learned and what we've been talking about is it's that second pillar, it's that respect for people that's so important. We, we, today, in the, in the workshop, we talked about how fear and the lack of a safe workplace can really get in the way of team performance. In IT, it's particularly chronic because you've got silos of specialization. You've got incredibly high visibility, high pressure stakes. When a company's server goes down, when they have a security breach, when you can't run payroll checks. These are not problems we can fix next week. Heads roll. So the pressure and the stakes and the visibility and the risk involved with these problems are dire. They're, they're dead serious. And that's created a culture of fear. That's created a culture of, of expertise and silos that don't necessarily talk. So what many organizations have found is they bought into the promise of lean in IT, which the latest uh, label of that is DevOps. But what they're finding is we can't get there without lead with respect and the path to lead with respect and to applying this appropriately is m a more mindful, conscious approach. So it's bringing the social side, the, the soft side, together with the hard facts of needing to do the work, to build the car, or to write the code, yes. or to make sure that the server's up again. It's how exactly. you marry those things together that makes the difference, that exactly. actually fulfills the promise. That's exactly right. And in today's world, now I've got to write the code, I've got to launch the server, I've got to secure the environment, I have to deal with the security breach, and I need to do it almost instantaneously. So not long ago, I had six months or I had nine months to do that. Now I need a system that can pretty much do that within a day. How do I get there from here? Well, the good news is the technical side is there, it's available. But the technical side without the human touch, it doesn't work. In other words, I can automate my server deployment, but if I don't have the trusting environment with the curiosity and the structured problem solving, it 
doesn't work. It doesn't work. What I will do is create a bottleneck in my stream. I will be able to create as many virtual servers as you could possibly use, but I won't have the software available at the right time. I won't have the business ready to use the new functionality. I won't have our vendors online to access the data. So this whole thing is a massive value stream that has to be choreographed. That value stream is called the service delivery lifecycle. Service delivery lifecycle. Yes. Which is, it's the ultimate value stream of IT. And the, the beauty of this is we've kind of come full circle. So many of these concepts feel like lean manufacturing. Well, I, I also know that uh, after accounting, you spent some time as a plant manager. Yes, yes. And in that world, I think I've heard you tell the story of shortening a lead time from 15 weeks to uh, three weeks. Yeah, yeah. So what you just described in the server world uh, sounds like a modern-day version of that. And the if, fear uh, that that's exists when people are afraid of not being able to print out uh, <laughs> paychecks when uh, an assembly line goes down in a factory, similar sort of pressure, the same yeah. sort of silos. So we see these things playing out in different sectors, different domains. Very much. And over time, it often then calls something different. So now we have uh, DevOps is, yes. is, is the word we're using in the, right. in the IT world now. It, that's exactly right. Uh, and But the concepts are, are identical. They, it feels like we've been here before. So how can we make sure then that we don't repeat all the mistakes of the past? What's old is uh, what is, is new is new again. Yes. Um, what can we do to make sure that, that we actually progress and move things forward? Well, I believe it begins and ends with leadership. I've always believed, and my life has been grassroots, lean, and learning. But the and which is wonderful. But here's the problem with that approach: if you look at your workforce. How many people are grassroots learners, experimenters, lean thinkers? 5%, 10%? What about the rest of the population? They're looking for a path. They're looking for leadership. And when I see the companies that I've worked with that are struggling in their lean transformations, I always want to talk with leadership first. And I know what I'm going to see. I'm going to see leaders that have dialed in that have phoned in their role in the transformation. They're not engaged. They're not practicing the, the uh, principles of lead with respect. They don't understand the core principles of lean thinking. They're not using structured problem solving, but they want everyone else to. And I just see it time and time again. So where I'm getting success and where uh, some of the companies I'm working with are not making these mistakes are where the CIO and the CEO is have the humility and the and the the intelligence and the courage it really I would call it courage to step out and to say what can we do to ensure that we're not making these same mistakes and it's not comfortable for them they could play it safe and they could just say look Let's just stay the course. We don't need to try something new. We don't have to transform IT. And they might limp along for another 10 or 20 years. Or they can be much more visionary and say, no, if we're going to win at this game, if we're going to win in this industry, we need 
continuous deployment. We need an end-to-end -end SDLC. We need DevOps, a real DevOps. How do we get that done? A CIO or, and a CEO actually need to become vulnerable. And this is tough stuff. What I mean by vulnerable is they need to admit that there are things that they don't know and that the one thing they are willing to commit to is a structured problem-solving approach where we build a lean management system. This is not new stuff. We make our problems visible. We have structured problem-solving time. We build internal coaching capability. We align our goals with strategy deployment. These are all the lean tools that have been around that you, that you basically, John, you and others at LEI uh, shared with the world over the last 30 years. So I think you're suggesting, again, marrying different things together. Uh, humility, intelligence, courage, um, those are wonderful traits. Yes. And just as some other things you mentioned, it's, uh, including mindfulness, okay, wanting to be mindful and not have biases is one thing, but you yeah. need some techniques, you need some tools, they can, some processes that can get you there. Yes. Uh, in the same way, there's the piece of knowing what to do. Let's say I'm a leader who does want to be the kind of leader you describe. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, what can I do? And so using these uh, these me methods in the right way yes. can start to lead to that sort of, re uh, sort of a result. And so the structured problem solving being part of the suite of things that leaders can learn to do, mm -hmm. uh, then that can start to lead things to a different different place. And really coming back around to what you're teaching here at LEI this week, uh, which is lead with respect. Exactly. And lead with respect is, you know, there's somebody once said, it doesn't matter where, where you start, just get started. But I, I think lead with respect is a wonderful place to start because instead of getting drawn into the tools and methods of, of lean, it's much more important to have clarity around how I can create and clarify the why of our improvement effort. Why are we doing this? And I think, I think it was uh, Professor uh, Ed Schein that said, the only thing that leaders and managers do of real value is manage culture. Manage culture. And if leaders are clear on what we're trying to build and if their communication style truly connects at an authentic level with the people, they become very effective doing the most important thing they need to do. And that is eradicating the culture from fear and uncertainty. That's what we don't want. So the, a, a great place to start is with lead with respect. What we've done is taken that novel and broken it down into nine core practices or seven core practices, seven core practices that give leaders specific behaviors that they can demonstrate and model for their direct reports and other managers in the organization. When they, when they start there and they start to lay down the, the ideal behavior that we want to see throughout the organization, it creates a new tone. And I think a lot of the mistakes that have been made in the past where we run after a tool or we lose sight of the real purpose of a transformation or we leave people behind, we avoid that. 
So it's really how to do all of these things, you know, and I think, uh, you know, uh, Ed Schein also cautions about trying to manage, trying to directly change culture. Keep in mind what's the task at hand and understand that and analyze that. Uh, and as you're moving the organization to solving its problems, its reason for existence, its purpose, then be mindful of the fact that the uh, culture is going to be the thing that you have to pay deep attention to. Yes. What we have now is an opportunity and a challenge to be able to use some of these specific practices mm -hmm. to help both change ourselves as leaders and through doing that change the organizations and through doing that to be able to solve and achieve our organization's purposes. Sounds like that's what you're trying to do both with the mindfulness workshop you'll do for us uh, at the uh, summit in Nashville, and also with the uh, Lead with Respect uh, workshop you're doing for us this week, and you're doing on other occasions as well. Yes, that's that's exactly right. And uh, I'm just thrilled that there's so much interested in in the, there's so much interest in this, and that it's starting to really resonate. I think a lot of organizations are have are to the point where they realize what's the missing piece here what don't we have why are we not getting the level of engagement we need from our people why can't we as leaders and as managers focus on the work at hand so a final question for you um so you've had a varied career you've uh, done a lot of things you've had some common threads uh, throughout but uh, you've written some books, so uh, what is going to be your, your, your next book or your next workshop? Two or three years from now, uh, what are you going to be doing to try to uh, achieve your own uh, purpose? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, for a couple of years, I've been trying to um, connect the dots around lean thinking and mindfulness. And I, I thought, well, maybe I should write a book on that. Uh, and I think uh, several people have attempted to, to write books on that. There's been books on flow, for example, and things yes, like yes. that. Quite uh, Several very famous books on flow. But uh, I feel that that's part of where I want to go. But I think uh, there's, there's more to the story from that, than that. Uh, right now I'm working on a, a new workshop, uh, which the working title is Authentic Leadership. And really, there's many leadership workshops out there, so I'm not trying to copy all the great leadership workshops that have been there's done. There's no shortage of leadership books and leadership <laughs> workshops. No. This is, this is true. But really, this is, how do I make it real? That's really the focus. How can you make it useful? Yes. This is ultimately the challenge, and that's a, a fundamental question of lean thinking. Yes. Is uh, not just theoretically, does it make sense, but uh, is it useful? Is it going to make things better? Yes. And that is the ultimate test. If it's just another intellectual treatise, uh, we've got plenty of those. We don't need another one of those. So if I can identify something that, that, uh, that inspires me and might be promising to actually be useful, to use your term, uh, I think that would motivate me. But as you know, writing a book is a is a major commitment. So uh, I've done two, but yeah, I feel like there's another one out there. They say after you've written a book or two, you decide, you discover what you really need to write about. Right. So, you know, uh, heaven to have written, hell to write, and uh, as one book comes to a close, the 
feeling is usually never again. Exactly. Uh, but there are usually a lot of things left over that you realize that you do want to write. And it seems like you're in the middle of a lot of uh, learning still. Yes, yes. So no doubt there are going to be some new uh, things that you come up with. Yeah, I hope so. And so thanks for joining us today. Thank and you, John. Come it's back been a with pleasure. us again. To, uh, to I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks, thanks Mike. If you have feedback, show ideas, or questions for Lean Thought Leaders, please send them to pod, P-O-D, at lean.org, and maybe we can address them on a future show. Once again, that's pod, P-O-D, at lean.org for all your questions, feedback, and anything else you'd like for us to know. Thanks for listening.